because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. This is Cows in the Field. This is a podcast in which we explore philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And so this episode is coming out in June. So we figured let's do a Christmas movie in June. <laughs> That's also a horror film. Uh, so we're going to talk about Joe Dante's Gremlins. We're happy to welcome to the show Brandon Polite. Brandon is a professor of philosophy at Knox College and the host of the YouTube series Polite Conversations, Philosophers Discussing Art. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So we settled on Gremlins, and um, I wanted to start with just a question. This is for all of us, but most importantly, Brandon, um, what's your history with the movie Gremlins? Um, my history with the movie is really long. Um, I watched it when I was way too young. And so what happened was, uh, my parents went out for the night and left me with my grandparents to, to babysit. And they took me to the movie rental place, which was probably a grocery store. Uh, and I was probably, you know, the movie came out in what, 1984. So yeah. I was either, I was probably, well, I had to have been, uh, three years old. Um, and I pointed at oh the gosh. tape with the cute little creature on the front <laughs> and they rented it for me and I watched Gremlins when I was three years old. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I, so do you have memories of that experience? No, I have no, Still, no memory of it whatsoever. But then when my parents came to pick me up, <laughs> like my grandparents are like, we watch this movie Gremlins. It's really disturbing. Like one of them gets, you know, blended up in a blender and like people get killed. <laughs> my parents were mortified that they let me watch Gremlins, which I mean, granted, it was rated PG, right? It 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 plus um uh Indiana Jones and the Temple of the uh, Temple of Doom, both Steven Spielberg related properties right that they're what are responsible for the pg-13 rating um and so yeah. you know had it been rated pg-13 had that rating existed i don't think my grandparents would have let their three-year-old grandchild watch that movie <laughs> yes i think that's right and so when did you revisit it then at like when do you have what's your first memory of gremlins i mean i was still relatively young it had to have been from watching it on television and watching you know bits and pieces here and there over the years but you know i had uh gizmo and stripe like action figure type things i had the the shrinky dinks <laughs> of um gremlins i had like the play school like color form like where you have like the little like vinyl peel off things that you can move around on the the scene and it was billy like having a snowball fight with gremlins i'm guessing outside of the high school um so yeah like it's like ingrained in you know my memory from early childhood. That's did you ever have the stuffed gizmo? No, I never had like the stuffed plush? gizmo. So so when I was I was born in this year in 1984, and the, my dad must have just seen the movie, and so the gift that he brought to the hospital 
when when my my mom gave birth to me was a stuffed gizmo. So my first toy was a stuffed Mogwai. Your mom and, always tells that story yeah. like kind of pissed. Yeah, still. I don't think she she's, was happy about yeah, it. Yeah, she's like, he, he's not gonna get a teddy bear, like a normal thing. Like he got him a fucking like. She's like, I don't even know what the thing is. Yeah, she didn't know what it was. <laughs> and like, it, you know, and I had it for a long time, and and I was also confused by it until I saw the movie, and then I was like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. So. He's so yeah, cute. He's, he's the hero. Yes. Yes. And he's a little kid, too. Really. Like, I mean, course, I guess yes. the gremlins get up to more stuff, but still Mogwai gets up since, you know, he makes some mischief in a way that felt very childlike to me. Oh, familiar yeah. to me as yes. having having a toddler in the house. Yes. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, Brandon, you. So is this a film you like revisit regularly? Do you come back to this movie? Do you do you like it today? Yeah, I mean, it's been at least a decade since I've watched it. And, you know, and rewatching it, you know, prior to our discussion, you know, the special effects are really not great. Um, in, in general, the, you know, the broader themes of the movie, I don't think cohere. Uh, I think they try out different things and then don't really, um, uh, you know, follow through on them. But it's just a really, really, really fun movie right it's anarchic and deeply enjoyable well on the special effects let's talk about that i thought some shots were fired uh <laughs> I, I think i actually think i really like the practical effects um there are i think yeah i can see where maybe there's some questionable stuff but um i kind of like how limited it all is you know how how basically yeah. every time you see a gremlin or mogwai there has to be it, it's in a weird position because there has to be a puppeteer underneath it yeah like moving it around and it kind of moves in a janky way but it feels so tactile and i like that about about the special effects yeah, yeah. there's only one stop motion sequence i think yeah i think there's one or maybe a couple points where there's stop motion and it looks a little weird but i, yeah. I also kind of enjoy like i like i know you love you love practical effects and, and stop motion I, I guess dante had said that they were thinking about doing the whole thing in stop motion and then realized it would take them oh. three billion years to make yeah. it if they did that because every shot has a gremlin in it basically right yeah um, just the movie theater <laughs> scene would take you know a year and a half <laughs> yes if, if not a decade. <laughs> I actually wonder how they did that because I my suspicion is that they didn't actually make that many gremlin puppets. So I wonder if there's if they actually either double exposed or they did, you know, they composited different gremlins into that scene because that's a lot. It could be a lot of work. Or if what they did was some of the gremlins have like significantly less detail. So the ones in the back. Yeah. Especially in the dark room. I was yeah. wondering, maybe not all of them are moving too. But it's a it lot feels like of, they're all moving. Yeah, yeah. They're all moving around. I don't know. That's what kind of felt like maybe they composited it. But I just think, you know, like there's some really, as an argument for making it not all stop motion is, is that the gremlins can interact then with the people. So like when you have interaction yeah. between a real person and stop motion, you get like Jason and the Argonauts, which looks a little bit weird. It has its own weird uncanny effect. It's very hard to line it all up. Mm -hmm. And this one, you you have the puppet stripe, like chainsawing <laughs> Billy, and the, you know? And that looks, you know, really real because they just got some guy manipulating a puppet. Anyway, I, I find it, it's like visceral and intense. Anyway. Um, yeah, it, it amplifies the horror, definitely, yes. right? Especially the scene where, you know, the Billy's mom is, you know, protecting the house from the gremlins and protecting herself from them, right? Like, you, you know, it's genuinely anxiety 
confusing. Yeah. It's really terrifying. I mean, and let's so let's talk about this. So it's I think one of the fun things about this film is it has this kind of genre bending element to it. So there's um uh it's it has elements of a kind of um you know family <laughs> comedy. Uh it had but it also has horror, it has slapstick humor as well. Um and it sort of effortlessly slides between these things. In that regard, it kind of recalls I mean, particular Evil Dead 2, which really leans into the the horror comedy stuff. Um, but just to give one example of this, I was thinking about, like, what my favorite... Of course, there are some very dramatic instances of comedy in this film, like like absurdist comedy. But I think one really interesting instance where the genre elements are feel like they're really blending is in the scene when the gremlins attack Mrs. Deagle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Mrs. Deagle is, well, we're going to talk more about her, but she's the, you know, if there is a villain in this film, besides the evil gremlin stripe, it's Mrs. Deagle, and we'll get into her more, but anyway, she's the kind of evil landlord, and um, <laughs> she hears carolers, and she's like, I hate Christmas carolers, <laughs> in classic evil villain of a Christmas movie goes to the door and it's a bunch of gremlins <laughs> dressed as Christmas carolers singing the gremlin song. Da, 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 da. You know, they're like singing yeah. their gremlin song. And so she freaks out. And so first of all, the first thing is I'm thinking, that's pretty scary. I'm sorry. That's not that scary. No, that's actually pretty silly, right? These creatures are there dan- they're dancing and singing for her. But then she goes and she's like, She's like, no, they're coming for me. I, I don't. What did she say? I'm not ready yet. Meaning, I'm not ready yet to die. Yeah. She thinks she's gonna die, and then she gets on her chair. She has this chairlift to go up and down the stairs, and we know that one of the gremlins has made it malfunction. And so, in this moment, I think it's actually pretty horrifying. Like, she thinks she's about to die, be killed by these gremlins, and then she jumps on the chair, and then we have this moment of slapstick comedy again, where the chair rockets her so fast that she goes flying out the 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 window of the house so i think there it's like it's ping-ponging back and forth between comedy and horror and comedy and horror and i think the film just does that really well um it's yeah i feel like that's a real strong suit of joe dante yeah and i feel like with that moment too right just the uh, i'm not ready right there's a sense in which she's been preparing for this moment right and so that like, <laughs> she knows she's the bad guy and i mean how i interpret oh, it yeah. you know and wa- re-watching it is that like she thinks they're demons right she thinks that you know, death or the Grim Reaper or, you know, the devil has finally come to take mm-hmm. her for all of her years of evil. That's and awesome. so like, that's sort of hilarious to me, right? Is that she interprets this, you know, just like these creatures that have showed up seemingly at random as, <laughs> oh, this is from, what I've been preparing for hell. and I'm not prepared. They're going to drag her <laughs> corpse to hell. To hell. Yeah. <laughs> and of course it comes in the form of Christmas carolers because she hates Christmas carolers. Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. But I mean, the other like, you know, really dramatic example of this is the bar scene with Phoebe Cates. And she's, I mean, and it, it, which is just completely ridiculous. Um, maybe before we get to that, though, let's like just back up and kind of situate the film. So um, this is a film in which a, a, a kind of failed inventor, Richard Peltzer. Uh, goes to Chinatown and kind of sort of steals a creature that he finds in a in a Chinese store, uh, which we learn is a mogwai, and he calls him Gizmo, and takes him home, and then it you know gives him to his son for uh, his son Billy Peltzer for um, Christmas, 
And then there are three rules to the to the Mogwai or slash Gremlin um, kind. And so the first rule is they hate bright light and sunlight will kill them. The second rule is don't get them wet. And we learned that's because water makes them multiply. And then the third rule is never feed them after midnight. And we learned that if you do that, they will sort of turn into a cocoon and then morph into this more maniacal, uh, rubbery green gremlin. Um, so as you know, as we anyone who's watching this movie knows, you know, even if you have never seen it, you know they're going to get wet and they're going to eat after midnight. It's like Chekhov's like rules; they're yeah. going to happen. It's going to happen, and uh, and then chaos ensues. Uh, on the the notion of rules, um, so one of your previous recent guests, actually Matt Stroll, uh, who's been on your podcast a couple of times, um, his brother Josh, who's also a major cinephile thinks that Gremlins is the movie that best exemplifies the pandemic. Um, unlike a film like Pandemic, right? Why? Because there are just simple rules you have to follow to avoid chaos and death, right? <laughs> you wear a mask, six feet social distancing, you wash your hands regularly. That's all you got to do, right? To stop this virus from spreading and killing people. Right. And yet no one, you know, so few people just flouted the rules and, yeah. you know, yeah. over a million Americans died from this thing. Yeah. Right. And so like, it's just so brilliant that this film is just like simple rules. Don't feed it after midnight. Uh, you know, keep it away from water. Don't put it in the sun. Right. I mean, the sun one ultimately is the valuable one. Right. right. Um, but, you know, it's just like this brilliant observation that, and hilarious observation, I think apt observation, right? Just like a few simple rules. That's all you got to do. And no one could do it. Yeah. They last a day before, before the rules start getting broken. Yeah. The rules get broken so quickly, right? Because they know (laughs) that like people didn't tune in to watch like a cute little family movie, right? They came to see gremlins kill people. Right. (laughs) So, okay. I like this. I like this reading. Let's, let's just, interrogate this more i mean so obviously it makes for more fun a more fun movie when the rules get broken but it also tells us something about these characters and about the arc that they go on so at the end of the film what who, what's the name of the chinese shop owner what's do we, does he have a name I think like yeah mr. i think it's wing. mr wing mr wing okay so mr wing says he comes and sort of dispenses wisdom at the end he says yep. look you're you were not ready but maybe Billy, you will be ready at some point. And I, I think that is interesting that there's a kind of, the film is almost saying, whatever this thing is, Mogwai, whatever the meaning of Mogwai is in the, stru- in the course of the film, it's the sort of thing that requires a certain degree of responsibility and it can't be stolen. It has to be given, right, to, you know, to the worthy. Um, now, there's lots of readings of what the Mogwai is. I mean, one very apt reading is it's, it's a child, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> what else are things that, of which there are relatively simple rules you need to follow to, you know, to make this thing work? It's children. I mean, you know, like don't feed them too much candy. Oh, make you know fail, on especially my part. late at night. <laughs> uh, and you know, and and uh, I don't know. Don't I don't you don't drop them. Try not to drop exactly. them. Don't drop them. <laughs> make sure they get enough sleep, etc. And so, These you are know, all, by the way, hard to do. 
Well, <laughs> it's true. I mean, the, as we learn, as we learn, the some of these creatures are amenable, like Gizmo, and some of them, like Stripe, exist to primarily break the rules. Um, but I mean, are there other ways of interpreting the or or you know understanding the significant? You know what? What's the allegory of the Mogwai? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think the parenting one is probably the right angle to take just because Gizmo is so childlike. Um, and, you know, give them too much candy too late. They go crazy. That's what it is to have a kid too much sugar <laughs> too late. Like your day's ruined right now. Yeah. Presumably, most children aren't going to turn into homicidal maniacs if you give them, you know, candy after midnight. Um, but, but <laughs> when they get, when there are enough of them together, they <laughs> yeah. do seem to get up to some stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, it, but it's almost like, I love that the gremlins have this intuitive understanding of what, or at least the, excuse me, some of the, what are, are they called? Are they all mogwai? They're all mogwai. Okay, they're yes, all they're mogwai. Species, species. Or at least they're pupa species. Okay. But they all seem to know species. the rules, right? Yeah. And some of them are like. I like these rules. I don't want to break them. And others are, are like, I want to break these damn yeah. rules. So Stripe like eats through the 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 clocks wires, Assuming, right? Yes, yeah. So that he can like, so they can turn into gremlins. Okay. He knows the score. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they. Sneaky, sneaky. They understand. I love that they, <laughs> co- they can like read, speak. Yeah, they're so Eng- smart. English, and they also <laughs> they can read like the numerals and understand time and stuff. Well, I mean, further, <laughs> they know see, they seemingly know the layout of Kingston Falls, right? Yeah. That you know, Stripe knows to go to the YMCA because there's a pool there. Yes, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought about that too. <laughs> He's like, where is there a lot of water? Obviously, the local pool. And he sees the (laughs) sign for candy, and he's like, candy. Yum, yum. (laughs) Yum, yum. Yum, yum. Um, That's one of my favorite. Oh, my gosh. Yum, yum. Another sort of um, way of setting up the film is to sort of think about different conflicts and dichotomies that arise in the film. So, um, you know, obviously, one that we've been talking about is, like, Gizmo and Stripe. Like, these are, one is, like, the lawful good and the other is the chaotic evil to use D terminology um but what are some other dichotomies that that you saw uh brandon i mean i think the big one is uh you know the dichotomy between mr peltzer and mr wing right which is technology versus like ancient mythology or lore right uh and you also have uh west and east right american versus foreign Right, which you know plays itself out with um, is it Mr. Futterman, the the neighbor who's yeah. entirely mm-hmm. xenophobic, yeah, right, and you know only likes American made products, and you know is the one that believes in gremlins from you know World War Two. Did he say he was fought in the Pacific? Oh, I honestly don't remember. Because I mean that would even make this add a whole other point on that xenophobic twist. Is that like maybe he really did like these things are. Asian, they're from China, basically, and he may have actually. Suppose he fought in the Pacific, and maybe he, ex- he met actually a real met a real gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> He's been telling us the whole time. It's a little bit like in Independence Day, you know, the Randy Quaid character. He's, yeah, 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 has the same kind of vibe. Yeah, and I mean, further too, I mean, with the World War II thing, Billy's car is a Volkswagen Beetle. 
right? And so yeah. it's right. German made. And so, you know, another reason for Mr. Futterman, the World War II vet, to, you know, like German made products are untrustworthy. What do we make of this? Because I think like one read of the film is, you know, we're not vindicating this guy's mindset because he's just like some kooky racist guy. And and the, the characters kind of treat him like that. Like Billy and Kate are, yeah, they're just like, uh, you know, he's, he's, he just wants someone to talk to. I think that's what Kate says. Yeah. Um, that's all, you know, but like, we don't really believe any of this stuff. But the problem with that reading is that he is vindicated by the film. So where did it, where does these gremlins come from? They come from Chinatown. Uh, they do all the things he said, like they cause mischief and destroy things. And uh, I, so it's, I find it a little bit uncomfortable that the film, like in a way vindicates the xenophobic perspective of one of its characters. Um, I don't know. Is, am I wrong to think that? On the other hand, I mean, Mr. Wing, it, it's the kind of, it's sort of because of the like capitalist American side of, of, um, excuse me, Peltzer, Mr. Peltzer, yeah. that we end up with all this trouble to begin with because Mr. Wing, the East side of these things, wants to, you know, he understands the power of the Mogwai and he's protecting the, he's, he's being careful about it. And it's because like Peltzer, you know, is just like, everything costs money. I give you money. I give you money and I get what I want. And then, hey, we should get it wet again because like, I bet every kid in America would want one of these. That's true. Right? And so I don't necessarily think that it's, that it's like, you know, from the movie's perspective, the Chinese's fault or the China creates or the East creates mayhem. It's, it's like, it's, it's the, it's the Americanness of, um, of Kenmore Falls, Kentville. What is this place called? Kingston Falls. Kingston Falls. It's Bedford yeah, Falls well, essentially. But right. On, but on that reading though, I mean, the Mogwai is still a, of Chinese origin. Right. Okay. All right. And so on that reading, it's like, it's the melting pot. That it's cause of the cause of chaos. You take you take the Chinese thing and yeah. you put it in the American context and you get chaos. So if on that reading We should all be isolationists. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Okay, problematic. I don't all know. right. <laughs> right. But then again, the, the in the in the end, there is some reconciliation between Mr. Wing and Billy. He kind of he sort of sees the respect that Magwai that uh, Gizmo shows Billy and he says, Okay, maybe at some point you will be ready. So maybe there is this kind of like, look, you know, we've got, if we're going to, if we're going to connect. We can't got, coexist peacefully just yet. Well, no, maybe, we just, or... we have to, we have to, we have to be careful in how we, we bring the sides together or something like that. Like mm. you didn't follow our rules and that's part of what caused the chaos. So maybe, right. maybe that's it. It's like sort of like, you know, you, you got to respect You can just culturally appropriate and... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, mean, to, to, I mean, further, that message of Billy, one day you may be ready, just gets immediately undercut by Gremlins 2, where he gets Gizmo and then has to hide him in the you know filing cabinet. And then just immediately, like a few hours later, Gizmo touches water accidentally, and then it's... <laughs> The same thing, but in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even more chaotic. Exactly. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. I I mean, you do get the sense, and Laura, you, you were doing some research on how this movie came to be, but you do get the sense that Christopher Columbus, who wrote wrote this movie, or is it Chris Columbus, Chris, right? Yeah. If you call him Christopher, I think he doesn't like it. He's that, like, right? only my mother calls me Christopher. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Christoph Columbus, I think, is <laughs> how he, that's how his friends call him. 
Um, he who wrote it, uh, you do get the sense that it's this kind of like a kitchen sink script. There's a lot of stuff thrown in there, and it's not necessarily going to all cohere, uh, to, to your point at the top yeah. end. And I mean, I think it's a spec script, too. So he wrote it to show that, hey, I can do action, I can do comedy, I can do horror, right? That, And then I don't think he expected anyone, let alone Steven Spielberg, to buy it and produce it and make it a movie. <laughs> No, especially because I think it's original form. It was sort of unmakeable. Um, yeah. I mean, in that version, Billy's, there is no mo- cute Mogwai. There's just like, or, or the cute, the, there is a cute Mogwai, but it's not Gizmo. That one turns into Stripe. Billy's mom gets decapitated. Apparently at one point they walk into a McDonald's where people are like all dead inside the McDonald's. <laughs> so it's like a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Obviously, Steven Spielberg was like, I have some notes. <laughs> well, that, but that is the Spielberg magic, is he takes this thing, which is pretty dark, and, you know, it leaves enough darkness. At, to, yeah. to, to your point, Brandon, that it, it was quite disturbing when you were a kid, but it, he kind of cleans it up enough that it can be family-friendly. This is the kind of magic. I mean, the other one you mentioned in that regard about uh, prompting a PG-13 rating, the um, Temple, Temple of Doom, of I mean, that has a, that's a kid's movie, ostensibly, yeah. in which a dude plunges his hand into some guy's chest and takes out his beating heart. <laughs> it's so intense. Fali ma shakti day. Nice. But that, Spielberg is the master of being able to balance on that razor's edge of whether this is yep. like, kid-friendly or not. I had also read that Dante talked about this experience as being really fun for him because he had sort of like the umbrella of Spielberg and so the, but he, but he didn't have like the presence of Spielberg because Spielberg was super busy mm-hmm. doing Temple of Doom. So like whenever he needed something or whenever like the, the studio was breathing down his neck, he'd be like, oh, just call Steven. And Steven's like, what? I don't have time for this. Okay. And then he calls the studio like, tell, do whatever Dante wants you to do. <laughs> and then, so he kind of like had somewhat of a free reign while shooting. Although I guess, you know, then at the end, you know, Spielberg did want did have some notes, you know, like he wanted to take away the Santa Claus, the daddy Santa Claus scene, okay, <laughs> for example. Should we, before we get to that really quickly, okay, yes. just so we don't, because I, I, we have to talk about that. Yes. This, it, this does not belong in this movie. Anyway. <laughs> but I just want to mention one other, maybe there are more, you guys, but I just want to mention one other dichotomy. Yes. Think about this movie in terms of oppositions that are being contrasted. Um, I think, a, a real through line to this movie, which is not particular to this movie, a lot of movies around this time and in the 90s had this through line, is careerism versus just like chilling, mm-hmm. right? Like chilling with your hobbies. So some examples of this. Billy is an artist. He has got no money. He lives with his parents, right? He's a comic book artist. Um, his friend is named Gerald Hopkins. That's Judge Reinhold's character. Okay. This dude's like a careerist loser, right? <laughs> he's got like a cool apartment and he's got cable and he tries to like hit on Kate and she just rolls her eyes. Um, he says <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a stereotypical a, 80s yuppie douchebag. Yeah, yuppie douchebag. Exactly. And so, okay, so that's that's like one instance of this. But another instance of this is like Billy's dad, Peltzer, Rich, whatever, dad Peltzer versus like mrs deagle so mrs deagle is obviously this you know money grubbing landlord and his dad richard pelser is like he all he wants to do is make these silly inventions which obviously don't work and everyone just has to tolerate him um 
he's like the worst inventor, but also it's super endearing because he just is really into it. He's super into his inventions. Um, and so I kind of like that, that through line. I'll give one more example of it. I kind of think Gizmo and Stripe fit this vibe. So Gizmo, we always see him just like curious about the world. He, we first see him at, in Billy's house, like chilling on the piano and singing and then whenever the the other once the other mogwai show up and they're getting into mischief we cut over to gizmo and he's just rolling his eyes because he just wants to chill with his comics you know or or whatever or play his trumpet and they're spitting on him and, and so on but then stripe on the other hand now careerism all right it's a bit of a stretch yeah, but he's got like a master plan he's a master plan he's got like a careerist blaster plan his master plan is dominate everyone and make so ultimate chaos and like he's single-handedly devoted to that and he has no he seems to like have no other you know passion uh besides causing whatever his like chosen path is um so anyway i think this like you you know again it's not unique to the film but i think this is like a through line that kind of unifies some of the threads no but i mean i think that the careerist thing right relates to laura's earlier point about like capitalism being the source of the problem right because the film really does goes out of its way to juxtapose like billy and his family with the deagles and the judge reinholds of the world right where they're just like nice they have a nice home life nice family life which of course steven spielberg loves um which is why the mom can't die right um and yeah that you know it's it's the you know careerism stuff that is the the problem right that you know phoebe cates the you know girl next door type character with a really dark past um a needlessly <laughs> gratuitously dark past right who she likes billy not judge reinhold's character right it is kind of interesting that she ends up having to work two jobs like, I don't know why that quite that is, but, um, you know, she's, she's... She's not getting paid for one of them. Oh, wait, really? Yeah, she's <laughs> yes. working for free at the bar. She works at Dory's for free. Just to help out the... Yes. Oh, never mind. I didn't catch yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. small town values, right? You help your neighbors, yeah. whereas yeah, you have that's the great. bank people who, you know, and the deagles it. of the world who are, you know, the Mr. Potter slash uh, Ebenezer Scrooge slash Elmira Gulch of the world of the film. <laughs> Right. She wants that dog. She wants it dead. She wants their property. Right. The mother with the two children who are hungry, like, oh, you got to pay or you can't pay. We're taking your house. Let's talk about that. So Mrs. Deagle, you mentioned she's a combination of Scrooge, Potter and Gulch, the Wicked Witch. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, those are certainly homages to these to these films. And, they, and they, you know, it's definitely coming up. It's pretty on the nose. I mean, she wants to kill the dog. Yeah, she and, never at one point says, and your little dog, too. But yeah. almost she does. <laughs> yeah. Um, what can I... So, Laura, you're a Wizard of, of uh, Oz expert. Mm. It, what, what is the reason the Wicked Witch wants to kill the dog in Wizard of Oz? No I think reason? he's always just, like, getting into her garden, I think. Okay, yeah. so it's, the, it's basically yeah. this. Yes. Because I was thinking her reaction is a little bit overblown. It's a little strong. Yeah, so is Elmira Gulch. Yeah. Like he's just Toto, I think, just gets into stuff. They I live see. on the farm. He runs wild, and I think he gets into her gets into her garden and oh, bothers I see. So her. you mean like he gets into stuff like he breaks a few dishes and throws a few uh <laughs> saw blades at you, and then your response is kill him? I mean, come on. That seems he just a little a few bit rules. Yeah, he's just, <laughs> all Stripe is doing is breaking a few rules, multiplying, 
eating after midnight and now your response is put him in the microwave and turn it on high. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. It's been a while since I've watched Spit Wizard of Oz actually, but I think at some point he also kind of like jumps at her because she's being mean and yelling about the dog. And I think he like jumps out of Dorothy's arms and kind of goes at her and she turns that into like, he's attacking me. Uh, I can't. No, just like I think she, the um, goal. Yeah. Uh, um, Billy's dog does too. Exactly. Yeah. Billy's dog yeah. kind of jumps out behind the counter and she acts like she's having like a cardiac arrest. Oh, and I guess she ends her demise. She is the with the legs. So the legs are sticking oh, out yeah. of the, of the, yeah. Right of the uh, chair in the snowbank or whatever. And does so. she yep. have striped socks too? I feel I like think she maybe. Might. Yeah. Really? Oh, maybe. I, I mean, I her socks like w- are very visible. Okay, so I would have. Ca- I feel like yeah. I would have caught that as a Wizard of Oz reference if it was striped. But that's really cute. I didn't think about that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I was wondering. I'm trying to. F- I was. I keep noodling on why these movies are there, except for that, like you know, the sort of surfacey. Chris Columbus is writing a spec strip. It's, script and throwing in homages to his favorite movies. But both Wizard of Oz and Wonderful Life have this have this moral or have this um theme of home and your relationship with home. Both Dorothy and George come to a place in the end of the movie where they were they come to appreciate their home, the people that that surround them, the love that they have. They were taking that for granted or they were feeling stifled by it at the beginning of the movie. Um, but Billy uh, never seems to resent Kingston Falls in the same way that George resents Bedford Falls or that Dorothy dreams of bigger things in Wizard and of in the Wizard of Oz. Um, so I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Billy could, right? Like he's sort he's of an artist. He's an artist. He could, he's yeah. he's maybe stuck. He's after he's he's graduated. He's working this job, perhaps supporting the whole family at the bank. But there doesn't seem to be any like I gotta get I gotta get out of Kingston Falls. I have these dreams. Like there's nothing. He kind of appreciates his family from jump. I feel like so there isn't a real the same arc there. But there's think some too, relationship with sorry, hometown I, I America. Think too, yeah, um, that he does mention relatively early on when he's talking to Kate that oh I can move to the city. I could you know get a bank job. You know a bigger bank job or I could get a promotion here. And she's like, why would you want to do that? Like Kingston Falls does everything you could possibly want. Just do your drawings and, you know, live a happy small town life. Right. In which case she's his Mary. <laughs> if that's her, if yeah. that's her role to play. But yeah, he doesn't seem to have this, you know, he really, he just seems to really love his dad <laughs> and like, yeah. and uh, there's no frustration about like his, his sort of silly, maybe embarrassing dad whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it. I think Brandon, you said this at the top, which is like a lot of the themes don't totally come together. And I think this is an instance of that where there's a conflict here that if, if Chris Columbus were maybe at this point in his career, a little bit of a stronger writer, he would have fleshed it out a little bit more. The conflict being the Peltzers may very well lose their house. So this is a real conflict. And you might add to that conflict, Billy wants to get the hell out. But then yeah. he's got he's to help out. So he's working at the bank. He sort of resents it because he's got to help his parents out, pay for the house because his dad's this, like, uh, you know, moron inventor or whatever. But he's so <laughs> endearing that it's okay. So anyway, I do get the sense that, like, that's there, kind of, but it's not really fleshed out enough to make it, you know, to really give the the viewer much to hold on to and so i don't begrudge the movie that but i do think that like if you're gonna throw in a bunch of references to movies where that is basically the conflict you might as well like 
you know, draw it out at least. I don't know. Yeah, it, maybe and, and I was thinking of it exactly in terms of, you know, most monster movies like are reflections of like baser anxieties and, and fears and, and desires, right? And, you know, so so Alien is about, you know, dealing with anxieties about pregnancy and childbirth, right? Frankenstein, you know, the classic gothic horror novel is dealing with the exact same thing. It's anxieties about uh, pregnancy and childbirth. And this film, you know, it's a, it's a monster movie. There are monsters and it could reflect general or deep seated anxieties or desires, but they're just sort of pure anarchic comic, uh, cartoony evil that, you know, uh, do sort of sassy, silly things and also kill people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's, I mean, here's a way to spell, spell out this, and to connect that theme that you're mentioning, Brandon, so to give these monsters some re- actual representational content of an anxiety or something. So suppose Kate and Billy are together at the beginning of the film. Billy wants to leave, but he's being he's felt he's held back by his parents, and Kate wants him to stay and have kids. Then the gremlins could be represent his anxiety about staying in Kingston Falls and having kids with Kate. Because they're fucking demon kids, basically, right? And and so, and and he, you know, and at the end, he could be like, "Yeah, this is why I wanted to get the hell out of here and be an artist and not be stuck in Kingston Falls." And I do think that that dovetails a little bit with Gremlins too, where then it takes place in New York City, and they're both like yeah. doing their careers and all that. Um, and you know, I, but anyway, that would maybe enrich the film a little bit. But it, yeah. Anyway, I. I I actually, I don't know if it matters that much. That's what I, I'm like saying this out loud, and I'm like, then it maybe doesn't really matter. But it would at least give con- some content to the to the monster. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, one thing I will say is that the movie sort of stays very sophomoric, and that's kind of what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that it doesn't have depth really a- at all, right? I mean, we could see like sort of what they're going for of small town, big city, capitalism you know, small town life, East, West, you know, the xenophobia stuff. And it just doesn't develop them into anything of any real intellectual substance. And it's so it's like a B movie in that sense, which Mm -hmm. I think it very much is a B movie. The violence is cartoony, right? Um, Chuck Jones, the, you know, writer, director of so many classics, uh, classic uh, Looney Tune, uh, you know, cartoons is in the movie. Right. Um, and, and he's in the second one, too. Uh, he's the guy in the bar that Billy's showing his like comics to and is like, oh, these are really good. <laughs> right. And so it's just because I, I think Joe Dante just really loved Chuck Jones's stuff. Um, uh, and I mean, he got Chuck Jones out of retirement and, you know, the very beginning of Gremlins 2 with the little uh, uh, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny cartoon. That's Chuck Jones at coming out of retirement, you know, because Joe Dante asked him to. So it's like cartoony, it's a B movie, it's deeply sophomoric, and I kind of love it for exactly that reason. Yeah, yeah. I I agree. I do think that's part of the charm of the film. Can I just say one potential um, totally galaxy-brained theory about this film? So I was thinking a little bit about the... So what I'm about to say I don't think is intentional, whereas I think some of the stuff we've been talking about, there was intention, and it could have been developed but maybe it's better if it didn't, and so we're we're in we're in good shape. But here's the thing that I don't think is intentional, but I think is kind of a quirky way to think about the film. So, um, uh, 
So I was thinking about why the Gremlins are watching the seven Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Mm-hmm. So they, they they end up dying in a theater where they're watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And it's like, why why that movie in particular? Um, and so I think Laura, you said maybe it has something to do with or John Joe Dante said he just liked so, could you just say what you, you thought? There's two things. One is that Dante just loved the idea of the gremlins being moved by Snow White because yeah. it means so much to so, be- so many people. And like the, the, these complete these these figures of chaos and evil are like are still just like stopped dead in their tracks okay. by the power of the movie of, of of the movies and Snow White in okay. particular and how charming it is. The other thing is that um when creating the the Mogwai creatures, they were thinking about the dwarves. Okay. So this makes <clears throat> what I'm about to say less insane. Okay. Insofar as they're thinking about the seven dwarves, so, and I think they that sing, there is they have some personality. Yeah, there is some connection there for sure. Uh, I, I was thinking about so some people think that the seven dwarves are named after the seven deadly sins. Okay. Okay. So, like for instance, sleepy is sloth and grumpy is wrath. Blah blah blah. Okay. So, what is sneezy? That's what uh, I was wondering. Don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But there's, you know, it's this. This is a. This is like a theory. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. But then I was that got me thinking. Okay, so of course the gremlins are pretty evil. So maybe the gremlins are are they represent a kind of sin, and there is an original sin in this movie. Eating after midnight. No, it was <laughs> Peltzer taking the Mogwai. Oh, right, knowing that. I mean, yeah, the kid's selling it to him, but he knows that he's really stealing the Mogwai. Yep. So there's an original sin. And what happens at the end, you might think, is... Okay, so like, so humanity is, is, is inherits this original sin from the, the theft of the Mogwai. But who redeems them? The Mogwai. Because in the end, it's Gizmo who actually saves the day. And the way he saves the day is actually kind of interesting. So he doesn't do so by committing suicide, but he does basically endanger himself, right? To, to kill Stripe, Gizmo has to open the blinds, right? To release the sun, which effectively would also kill him. So he, in a way, he sacrifices himself. He doesn't die, but he puts himself in, in mortal danger. And so you could think of this as as a Christian allegory, where the right <laughs> where the Mogwai is Jesus, and right who you know <laughs> it's been and and the uh, and and Stripe is Satan. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just throwing it out there that that I mean I think Joe Dante might have had this in mind when he was writing. You think so? <laughs> Sorry, once I clocked that that Gizmo is. Jesus, yeah. I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So anyway, that might top your Mighty Ducks Marxist read. Yes, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a kind of weird way to think of it, but I did. I did think it was interesting that it is Gizmo who saves the day, like in the end, you know, because because Billy is is about to get killed by by Spike. Um. He's pure of heart, and he he's been watching pure. a lot of Clark Gable movies. Yes. It's been amping him yes. up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about Gizmo is the fact that he is so pure and innocent, and yet his offspring are just mm. evil, mm-hmm. right? And he sort of is pretty aware of that from the beginning, like, uh-oh. Yeah. Right? So I don't know how, like, this pure of heart, innocent being yeah. generates 
these, uh, you know, asexually reproduced in the way Jesus himself was. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, He's Jesus know. and Mary. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I um I didn't think about it this way until I was reading uh, a 2014 article by Keith Thiffs about this, but he's pointing out that that the all the like bad behaviors of the gremlins are like aping a lot of them are aping just humans, right? right. They start smoking right. immediately, right. they start drinking, they're vices. You know, they're vices, right? Yeah. Um, which I I love this idea that like this just people suck. That's kind of what Mr. Wing was saying. He's just like, you guys ruin everything. Yeah, Americans in particular. <laughs> Americans <yeah>. ruin <laughs> everything with yeah. your flash dance films. <laughs> <laughs> right? They're just absorbing culture, but like the worst aspects of culture. <laughs> They immediately get tiny working guns. Where do they get the tiny working guns? <laughs> Spananas. I do, yeah. <laughs> and one thing, I mean, you mentioned Flashdance. One thing worth noting is that the dude who wrote the song Maniac for Flashdance wrote a song for Gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Cimbello, that dude, he's the king of the 80s. Wow. Amazing. Do you know what song that was that he wrote for Gremlins? Oh, uh, it's, mm, I don't even know. I mean, it may be briefly in the movie itself. It's probably when like the one Gremlin is flash dancing. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that we're calling it flash dancing. <laughs> it's its own style it's its own of dance. Yeah, it's a genre where you have your leg warmers and you stomp really fast. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's there's, right. there's classical, there's hip hop, and then there's, there's flash, flash dancing. Flash dancing, yeah. yeah. Well, then there's also the gremlin who flashes uh, Kate. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So he, they've got that guy, and uh, you've got the, um, the gremlin who's got the gun and the ski mask on. He's got he a tiny want, ski mask. He doesn't want to be identified, you know? <laughs> the song's called Gremlin's Mega Madness. Hell yeah. But yeah, somehow to your to your point that Ma- Magwai is like a is he can he can he's still he's absorbing. He's absorbing yeah. all of our culture, but he's only getting the good stuff from it. No, like he's the just brave chill. and pure. Yeah. No, he's just chill. He's reading comics. He he's like he's like you know, I think that's why the kid analogy is the is allegory is probably the right one. Like you know, kids all are out there absorbing stuff, and some of them absorb it and are cool about stuff, and some of them yeah. absorb it and are. And you never know which dicks. way it's going to go. One mom friend to me was telling me she's like, "Oh my gosh, I showed my kid Peter and the Wolf to try and show him, a, learn, t- teach him about music, and now he's obsessed with guns." <laughs> oh, because they go hunting. Because there's a musket in right. there. Yeah, she's just like, "This is a terrible backfire. You never know yeah. what they're going to latch onto." Yeah, it's true. This dang Mogwai. Well, so, okay, let's talk about, we talked a lot about these boys, because the gremlins all seem to be boys. Yeah. Oh, no, not all. There's well, one lady, well, okay. there's one one gremlin with that, long hair That's true. And one gremlin dresses, as, you know, presents as as female. Yeah. Right? yeah. But they do all seem in this movie to be to be coded male, in my mind. But um, but definitely in Gremlins too. There's some lady Gremlins. There definitely are. Like there's the one, really the one sexy lady Gremlin. Right. <laughs> right. Is that right. the one who gets horny for a guy, for like yes. a human? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 
right. um, but let's talk about some of the actual human women characters. So in particular, <laughs> there are there's Billy's mom and and Kate. So Billy's mom has a great scene in the kitchen with the with the gremlins where she she is so efficient, yeah, surprisingly efficient at taking these guys out. Like she had served in World War II or something. Like she grabs two knives. Yeah, she does. She's like grabs one and she's like, eh, I gotta take another one. I'm gonna get another one. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, she takes like there's seven. Wait, were there seven or there were there five? We counted. Were there seven? Like the seven deadly. No, I think sins? there's five. Okay, never mind. There were five. She takes well, out three well, sorry, almost there are five immediately. That come from Gizmo. Yeah. Yes, but yeah. Then there's Gizmo six, and then uh. Gizmo when they go to the science lab makes another one. So there are seven. Am I right about this? Gizmo makes one in the science in the science lab. They oh. take him to the science lab and, and then yeah. one drop puts one drop on him, and he creates another one. So that would be seven in total. It goes all the way to the top. It goes all the way to the top, my friends. <laughs> well, there's seven dwarves, so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> what were we even saying? We were talking about how cool his mom is. Yeah. yeah. She is the badass in the movie by far, right? And and I mean, she is absolutely efficient. Like she's been waiting, training her whole life for this moment. <laughs> Chopping <laughs> onions. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> I know what my husband's inventions can do, and I'm gonna use them to the best of you know my abilities. Yeah. She's would, also probably had to dodge a few dangers living in that invention house. You know? I, I, my, own, my only real complaint about this movie is I feel like we needed more gremlins dying by Peltzer inventions. Yep. You know, I feel like I wanted that like, juicer should have come back somehow. The or, juicer needed to be there and there needed to be like a Peltzer like onion dicer or something. And then like, right, that, like that chops up cause, a gremlin. Yeah, caused some drill damage or like, um, I don't know. Like what, what would be another one? Like a Peltzer like corkscrew or something. Or even just like, you know, the gremlins come in and you open up your bathroom buddy and, you know, projectile squirt some toothpaste in his eye or something. That's not going to kill a gremlin. Though. Well, nobody could get, help you get away. Mm. I'm just I'm just using inventions that we know are from the film. Yeah, but we your... can also make up wild <laughs> Peltzer inventions that they could have put in the film. I feel like th this was a missed <laughs> opportunity to, in my mind. Uh, Agreed. I mean, you're you're kind of describing Home Alone in a sense, right? Like mm -hmm. the gremlins Whoa. come to the house, which is, of course, Chris Columbus directed, right? The gremlins come to the house and then it's, you know, what other ways can we kill them? That's right. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a Home Alone gremlins mashup. Maybe the 2023 gremlins TV show will do that for you, <laughs> Justin. I mean, one of the other ones he has is a is a fly swatter that when you you it's like a gun thing, and then when you push the the button, the fly swatter things all go out in a sort of spiral pattern. Like I guess taking out flies, it's like a propeller, all yeah, yeah, a propeller. So that yeah, could have been tape some knives onto those. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I was I'm thinking <laughs> stuff like that. I'm like, this would have been this movie would have been a little bit more, just a little bit more awesome if there was a little more of that. Um, Definitely what you don't want, though, is, uh, what is it, Super Soaker. That's, that would no. be bad. Super Soaker of Gremlins, not good. Um, but what about Kate? So, you know, Kate has probably the strangest character in this movie. In a movie full of gremlins who imitate film noir, which they've never seen, and get drunk and smoke and have tiny little guns, it does feel like Kate, played by Phoebe Cates, is the strangest character in the film. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, by far. And I mean, she's able to hold her own in that bar with all of those gremlins, right? They don't kill her then because she's, you know, the one giving them the beer and, yeah. you know, lighting their cigarettes and so forth. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, she is just a weird character with the most, the, you know, just the darkest backstory. <laughs> Needlessly dark. First of all, it's a Christmas movie. And you know, there's a few mentions of Christmas, but one very salient mention of Christmas. Well, there's two very salient mentions of Christmas with Kate. One of them, she just starts talking about how the suicide rate is really high at Christmas. And Billy calls her out. He's like, uh, isn't Christmas fun? And she's like, no. Fuck Christmas. It's like the lo- people are opening their presents. Other people are opening their wrists. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Are you kidding me? Uh, and then he's like, and then right after that, he's like, do you want to go on a date sometime? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like, yes, finally. Yeah. <laughs> How romantic. Uh, but then, yeah, we get the, we we then learn why she hates Christmas. And um, yeah. It's like the longest scene in the movie. Yeah. It's, it feels like the longest scene. And it's just her with this monologue talking about how her dad dressed up like Santa Claus to surprise her and her mom when she was little. And he snapped his neck going down the <laughs> chimney. And yeah, they they uh, didn't know what happened to him until they started to smell him. That's so intense. Oh, my God. It's not just, I mean, one. Yeah. One one thing is like for the kids, though, is like I think I had no I didn't even clock any of this when I was a kid that watched movies. No, so it's, no, I didn't think about I just like zone that out because I'm waiting yeah. for the gremlins to come back. But so in some sense, it's it's super dark, but it's not contributing to the darkness for kids. Kids are I don't think kids are focused on how that is actually probably the way darker than anything that happens in the film. Yes. Um, but also, it's why is it in the film? Do we have any reason to like, what's the reason for this? I can't even make sense of this. No, it, it feels uh, just like a sick joke, right? Yeah. That it's just thrown in the movie and takes up so much time and it just grinds the action to a halt. Right. And then it's like, okay, now where are the gremlins? <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's a, here's a possible understanding of it. So as we learned, the, the original script was darker. So maybe the original script was intended to be not, like a family friendly horror comedy, but more of like a black comedy. And we're supposed to be like laughing almost as, you know, when they go into the McDonald's and find all the bodies or something, because maybe the bodies are killed in funny ways or something. Um, And so then in that context, maybe this monologue makes more sense because it's kind of darkly humorous. You know, I mean, he dies in a kind of silly way, but in this, in the context of the film, as we get this, it does not make sense. It's so out of space you know, out of step with like the previous scene, which was gremlins doing like the cha-cha on a bar that uh, it just feels so incongruous with that. And in a, in not a a positive way where the incongruity, like with gremlins singing Christmas carols, and then a woman thinking she's going to die and be dragged to hell is actually kind of funny. You know, this doesn't quite, anyway, it's like too incongruous. Yeah, and I mean, they reference it again in Gremlins 2 when, like, Billy meets up with Kate again near the end when, like, they've rescued his boss and, I guess, her as well. And, like, she starts to go on this monologue about, I I forget which holiday it is. It's, like, President's Day or something, right, where she (laughs) witnessed this horrible event and Billy's like, you don't need to say this now. You you could stop, right? And so it's, like, (laughs) 
you know, Joe Dante <laughs> and the writers are aware that it was totally out of place in the original. And so they're going to reference it just to make fun of it in the second one. I like that. Actually, that makes it okay because it had a good joke. It sets it. It's basically it's playing the long wait, game. It's just waiting for the for yeah. two to make the joke. Because yeah, Dante is really long setup. Because <laughs> I mean, Spielberg said we should take that out, and Joe Dante was like, "No, no, no, keep it in and double it," well, as some people would say. Yeah, I mean, and in Joe Dante's defense, it's hard to know sometimes in advance like how this is all going to play, especially when you're on the you're on the set and you're filming and you're like, ah, the tone is not clear necessarily until yeah you, and then when it comes together even it might not even be totally clear how it's gonna fit and and land and so yeah i could definitely see that just being you know they're like trying stuff out you're experimenting um um i mean i do think that dante is really a master of this kind of you know knife's edge horror type comedy thing and he does it really well also in the twilight zone movie um his his sequence and that is the sequence with the demon child who's uh, who's who's imprisoned his family um, because he can basically do anything he wants, and so he just like forces them to let him watch TV and feed him ice cream all day. Um, and if they disobey him, he sends cartoon characters, personified cartoon characters, at them. Um, and that has that same blend of absurdist comedy, but also quite startling um, horror. Um, and it also has music by Jerry Goldsmith. So that's, I'm setting it up. Um, I think the music in this film, like the music in the Twilight Zone movie, is awesome. And the the Jerry Goldsmith score is just, I think it just crackles. I love it. Every time I hear that that fiddle... But did you guys like the score? I mean, I feel like it's so integral to the film. Yeah. And I mean, I love, too, that Gizmo gets his own theme. That's sort of this innocent sweet that he gets to coo, right, as he's singing. I want to ask you guys two other questions. So one is um, just there's a lot of scenes where people are battling gremlins, but do you guys have a favorite? I mean, we talked about the kitchen scene. Um, there's a couple other ones. I mean, there's one that we haven't talked about. Actually, we should mention this, which is the scene in the school mm-hmm. where the, the the teacher, I don't know, I forgot his name, who's the only black character. And yeah. also, I have a sense, the only character who dies. He's the first who character dies. who dies. I yeah. think Mrs. Deagle dies. I think does the, she die? Okay, it's implied that other yeah. people die, but yeah, he's the first character that dies, and of yeah. course, it's the black guy. Yeah, um, unfortunate. Yeah, um, but that's a this still a pretty harrowing scene, <laughs> right? I mean, I thought that was a great scene. Um, but anyway, did you guys have a favorite gremlin battle scene? I, a couple. I'll just mention a couple other ones. There's the. Kitchen battles, we talked about, there's the movie theater, mm-hmm. and then there's the final department store scene. Those are some of the big ones. I like a good 80s mall. We're going to use every store and all of the stuff. We're going to be in the toy store, and we're going to see a little AT, and then we're going to be at a sports store, and he's going to be like using the tennis ball launcher. 
I like that. Mm. I feel like that's like a subgenre in itself, right? That like we're stuck in a mall and we're using all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel I feel like the final one is the most harrowing and the most significant. I do love the scene in the kitchen with the mom. Uh, like she is just such like in control um, in like a really surprising sort of way and is just like efficient at killing these things right yeah. just like yeah toss them in the microwave all right let's put them in the blender okay <laughs> now <you> stab. <laughs> it is one of those things where i i feel like because i saw this movie when i was young that i always had in lodged in my head that if there was a cre- gremlin sized creature and i was near a microwave yeah that's what i'm doing first i'm putting mm-hmm. them in the microwave and i'm turning it on high it's, I mean, it's pretty gruesome. I mean, it's actually, just speaking of gruesomeness, that's, that part is incredibly violent. And so is the finale where uh, Spike is exposed to sunlight and then Indiana Jones style melts. Oof. And it is really intense. Like, that's the part I think that if I was a parent, I would be, I would be concerned. Yeah, because also he's... Uh, giving birth to at the same time, right? The, right. He's in the water. The you know the sacks of the other gremlins are forming on his back, ready to jump out, and then he's fried by sunlight at the same time. Like it's so disturbing. And then of course we get the moment where the monster isn't quite dead, and yeah. his skeleton jumps out at Billy one final time before he finally melts in the sun. There's so much. I feel like it's so disturbing, partly because. It's so anatomical. Like you see the sinews of his uh, muscles as the flesh is sort of dripping off. And then at the end, you see the bones and the bones go from being hard to being soft. And there's something like really weird and uncanny and icky about that. Um, I don't know. It weirdly didn't disturb me that much as a kid. But when I think about it, I'm I'm like, I should have been pretty. I should have been disturbed by this. Like it's really gross i mean the fine the final thing is like he's melted and then like his he's whatever is breathing is still breathing there's like an air bubble that's coming up it's like (laughs) yeah the goo is still pulsating yeah it's still some part of this thing is still alive um or you know it's still animate and it's it's quite quite gross um, and i mean maybe we were traumatized by it or scarred by it and we just don't realize it. <laughs> yeah yeah it's true i weirdly i remember the indiana jones one and being quite scarred by that whereas this one i i i was like ooh, but weird but that one got me worse but i think part of why is that it happens in real time this you 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 do it does it with cuts so we get de- a little bit of decay cut a little bit more decay cut Back to the, now, now we're bones. And whereas in Indiana Jones, when the guy looks at the Ark of the Covenant, his face melts off of his skull. I think it's also a question of presentation, too. And we talked about about Jodante's love of Looney Tunes. But there's when when Billy goes to double check that that stripe is in fact dead and he goes to the fountain, the fountain is bubbling and has like bright red and blue lighting mm-hmm. in it. That looks so cartoonish, so over, you know, so unrealistic that I think that's that kind of presentation helps you when you see that skeleton. It reminds you of when you see like somebody get, you know, a character on Looney Tunes get incinerated and turned to bones and turned to ash and fall. Um, It's it's not like that context is not disturbing, whereas the presentation is different in Indiana Jones. 
And I think also the fact that it's not human probably helps sure. that too, yeah, whereas that too. the Nazis are human. <laughs> yeah. So like, oh, that's what's under my face. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So final question. This is the million dollar question. Okay. Gremlins 1 or Gremlins 2? So Brandon, do you have a, do you have an opinion on this? Oh, this is tough. I'm probably going to go with one, but I love the second one because it's insane. (laughs) It is the (laughs) most insane movie possibly ever, (laughs) right? That Joe Dante just leaned into all of the cartoony, over-the-top, campy stuff from the first one. I'm just like, yeah, let's make the movie that. Let's I mean, it, it gets rid of the dark comedy, right? It, I mean, it gets rid of the darkness. I mean, yeah, there's like some, you know, the one uh, alien, the one gremlin gets, you know, uh, taken care of in the paper shredder, right? And mm-hmm. so we get like that gross moment, which seems like mainly a callback to the first movie with the mom and the blender. But then everything else is just over the top, campy, cartoony, mm-hmm. right? And there's, you know, it, and it's not just that, you know, the gremlins have like separate personalities. They are like separate species or subspecies of yeah. gremlin, right? We've got the spider one. We've got the bat one. We've got the lightning one. We've got the dumb one. <laughs> <laughs> and the super, the super smart one who like some, somehow he, he, what does he end up doing? He like hosts a television show or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. And then, you know, he leads them all in New York, New York. Uh, that is that's one of the best parts. It is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think you're you're selling me on Gremlins too, Brandon. What about you, Laura? Oh gosh, I've only seen I've seen Gremlins now. Gremlins one, I've seen it twice. I think in Gremlins two only once. I see. So, um, you know, I don't. I'm not steeped in these in the same way. I even though I think we sort of came to the conclusion that the thing not everything coheres in this one. I really like the snow globe Christmassy feel of gremlins one and how Joe Dante sort of playing with like our impulse to be like it. We both kind of maybe feel nostalgia for this and also kind of want to shake that snow globe and like Mm. just set it on fire, (laughs) like throw a few gremlins in there too. Um, I, I like that feel and I like that it's got this, like I'm in a Spielberg movie, but everything is like slanted and strange. Um, I, I, so I'm voting for gremlins one. I think these are great points, and I think they're both really good movies. And I think Joe Dante is, you know, I weirdly an underrated director. I mean, <clears throat> I was looking at his filmography, and dude, kind of didn't, you know, make doesn't make movies that often. And he does TV still, right? He's doing TV, but you know, it just feels like someone of his sensibilities uh, ought to be making making movies and um especially during the during the aughts i mean he made two movies and i just feel like yeah just i want more joe dante in my life so if you're listening joe dante make another movie and we will go and see it uh make gremlins 3 no just do something else. he's doing one episode of gremlins 3 right the, the, the television, the television show. show, yeah. I'm not going to watch that. Sorry, Joe. Um, What's the what is the television series going to like premiere on or be broadcast on? I don't even know that information. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Laura. Laura told me like two nights ago. She's like, "Oh, there's going to be a Gremlins TV show," and I thought, "Cool, I'm never going to watch that." It's just, then... it's just funny because we like 
you know, we're not covering movies on purpose that have TV but runs. But it has happened. But it's yeah. happened now. This is the third time at least. What, what, so Lord Willow? of the Rings. It oh, came out right. right when we right, right when we started, did that series. Yeah. And then um, Willow. Willow and Mighty Ducks. Wow. Which well, is not one we've covered on this show, but on 92. I mean, it. I think what that actually speaks to is just that we're of the generation yes. that TV shows are mining for it, content. A lot of the a lot of the <laughs> reasons we pick movies on this podcast is be, is like films that one of the two of us had has some connection to from our childhood. And oh, lo and behold, now millennials are like have money to buy stuff so we And we're are, stuck at home because we have kids and so yeah, we're streaming a lot of so, stuff. Yeah, they're going to just <laughs> pump, you know, nostalgia baiting content into our brains. Unfortunately. Um, anyway, rant over. Brandon, thank you very much for being here. So tell us a bit about your show, Polite Conversations, which I think is fantastic and people should listen to. Um, but where, you know, tell us about the show and where they can find it and hear it and so on. So right now you can find it on YouTube. Over the summer, I'm hoping and planning to turn it into a podcast. So just put up all the audio in podcast form since I have 54 episodes presently uh, that are videos on YouTube. Um, so yeah, just look up uh, Philosophers Discussing Art on YouTube, and it's a series where I talk to other philosophers, typically those who work in aesthetics, about their work in aesthetics and issues in aesthetics. And it's, you know, we canvas all sorts of issues. So, you know, not really so much the fine arts, although we do some of that, but there are fantastic episodes on street art and memes and perfume and it's you know really fun and really rewarding and you know i hope people check it out uh, uh, friends fans of this show will enjoy brandon's conversations brandon's a very good interviewer and the topics are connect to the things the kinds of things that we touch on in very fleeting <laughs> ways in this in this uh, show, uh, and they go in much more depth on Brandon's show. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, Brandon, thank you very much for being here. This was a real pleasure. Awesome, thanks. This was fantastic. Um, and we are at CowsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com, and you can buy a shirt with two cows on it um, at cowspod.threadless.com. Uh, coming back in two weeks, we will be hanging out with returning guest Emily St. James to discuss the film Tar. All right. Thanks, everyone.